And welcome everyone to another episode of the Mind Sculptors Podcast. I am your host, Callahan. We are back with a new episode after taking last week off. I uh, <laughs> I was uh, came down with the case of the COVID last week, so uh, did not get that episode out on time. But we've got a great episode today for everybody. A conversation here with Phil Gallagher, otherwise known, uh, he's the founder of Thraben U and notable legacy death and taxes player. It's a really good conversation. We get into a lot of stuff about the inspiration that Phil gave to Charles and Michael when they were building their decks and all that stuff. It's a really fun conversation. But before we get to that, I do want to take a moment to thank all of you uh, who are patrons for uh, supporting us. It's uh, honestly what you do is uh, what allows us to continue to do this uh, like in an effective way and also allows us to do cool stuff like the MLC. One of the benefits of being a patron is access to our discord server where you can join our great community for all sorts of discussions. We're constantly talking about spoilers and deck building and memes and all all that jazz and it's it's truly a really good time also want to remind you we are obviously going back to audio only but if you do want to see our lovely faces and get the uncut episodes in their entirety uh you can get that as being a patron that's one of our new patron perks is getting access to the un i'm calling it uncut gems uh, because I won't let dead memes die. So if you want to join the Sculpty family, head on over to patreon.com slash the mind sculptors, and you can find out more information there. Also, uh, don't forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple podcasts, because if you rate us on Apple podcasts, I'll make sure to give you a shout out in the next episode. And guess what? You guys actually did it this time. So I've got five new reviews to read for you. This first one comes from a Greek God 101. This says, I love this five stars. Please more Ian. I will talk to Ian. (laughs) We'll see what we can do. A straight to Evan gives us five stars with a thumbs up emoji and says, good. Thank you. Um, (laughs) The Anthony Mello gave us five stars, entertaining and informative. Great energy and delivery. Highly recommend Pongo bringing everyone back to earth when they get too high on a card. Makes me laugh every time. Makes my workday go smoother. Thank you for the content. Thank you for the review. And I'm glad that we can help the workday go smoother. Also, uh, Millard Arnold the fifth gave us a five star rating of entertaining and engaging. This podcast is fantastic, not only for those enfranchised within the CEDH community, but also for newcomers and people who are just taking a look. Callahan, the primary host of the podcast, delivers a consistently good show, an interesting take on the format. And I tell you what, Millard, Arnold the fifth, I really appreciate that you like the show. Uh, And our last review here is from DTrain5742 who says best CEDH podcast five stars Callahan has collected an all-star roster of the top players and community figures in CEDH for the show. 
consistently great discussion in the latest cards, decks, and strategies that the format has to offer. If you like EDH, especially at the highest power level, definitely check the show out. We greatly appreciate that. So with that, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Like I said last week, I guess two weeks ago, that really helps us out. So if you want to continue to support us, that's another great way. Give us a review. So uh, with all of that said, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into my conversation uh, with the Mono White Guys and Phil Gallagher from Thraben University. I don't, I don't think Legacy ever played Ball Lightning. When Legacy, maybe when it was 1.5, type 1.5, maybe there was a Ball Lightning deck. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty sure when. I have like a 2-3 like a league out there somewhere playing Ball Lightnings in Legacy. It must yeah, exist. I, I think yeah. I vaguely I remember like playing some Skelementals. I, I think yeah, I've yeah, seen yeah, Skelementals, yeah. yeah, which is just the, <laughs> you know, the strictly better version, basically. But have you done the... Uh, uh, what is it? The, what's the retrace polymorph? Um, have you done the uh, the polymorph your uh, Tybalt into another into the Tybalt glow up for mono red prison that Pleasant Kenobi did? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this yeah. is why I love Legacy. <laughs> I've played so much jank in my day. So like. The, the the period that Charles knew me best in was the, was the period where like I was on the grind doing like the competitive tournament stuff when I was like one of I was becoming one of the death and taxes guys uh, like capital V. Um, now I'm more of a variety content creator um, for the summer. I'm doing YouTube content seven days a week. It's not all legacy. There's some pioneer, um, some popper, a, a little bit of most constructed formats and the occasional cute think, video or something crazy. I think you said no more modern, right? Modern is look. Modern, modern is and I are going through a rough <laughs> patch right now. Like our relationship yeah. status was a little shaky after they banned Splinter Twin, and uh, <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. Fine, but right? when you want to play the bad decks that are entertaining, modern just <laughs> modern just bullies you, man. Yeah, like it's true. I, oh, man. I'm showing up with two four mana cards as a combo, and it's just like <laughs> yeah. hammer you. Uh, here, here's a fun yeah. story. Speaking of hammer, you'll you'll appreciate this, Phil. Um, I played Hammer Time. This was before Loris was banned at a 1.5k in Des Moines uh, a few months ago, and I was playing uh, Hammer Time. And I was not doing very well, but my friend was doing really well, so I didn't drop. I just kept playing. Uh, so it was round five when I remembered that uh, the free to equip creature. What's that called? Um, paladin. Uh, pure still yeah, paladin. pure still paladin uh, draws cards when equipment ETBs. Yeah, I, I, I was just not drawing cards from that card for five rounds of magic. I mean, one form of resource denial is having an opponent that misses their triggers. So, <laughs> hey, mean, if my if my opponents were good and always remembered all their stuff and always realized all the things they could would do, they could do like my win percent would be like 15% lower. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, we, 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 we take those in a competitive setting. It's not, it's not our responsibility yeah. to keep track of their triggers. And that's like a particular competitive etiquette that I think doesn't necessarily translate well over to EDH and then into CEDH that when you finally play CDH at a tournament, it then just becomes apparent and then mm-hmm. like some CDH players everyone is so like, used to the leniency that people yep. have and it's very yeah. punishing yeah yeah uh, like Phil I think you would appreciate this uh, I, I top forward uh, at Marchesa 2022 with a mono white deck uh, that you know similar to like a style of like death and taxes as well uh, Heliod the Sunforged the Sun, the sun God. God. The, or, yeah, Sun God, yeah. the original, yeah. the OG. The, OG. the one that yeah. walking ballista combos. No, 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 no. no. The no. other one. Oh, the other God, one. The that one that one. makes enchantment oh. tokens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Michael yeah. was and playing the new one that combos yeah, I, with ballista. Yeah. Yeah. And right. I played it without Soul Ring in the deck either. So, you know, very, really sacrilege. Um, and we don't have to go into a really long dissertation about that either. But. Uh, the, the the thing that was interesting was that I had opponents who didn't know how Lean and Arbiter worked. Like they knew that they had to pay the two. <laughs> they just didn't know when. Like like someone cast solved the equation and it's like, and then they look at me for a response and then I was like, well, I can't respond unless you pass priority. Are you passing priority? And then they're like, yeah, I'm passing priority. And I was like, uh, okay, I will. I'm going to pass priority. And I looked at the other two players and I'm just like, just 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 pass priority. <laughs> and then like they, they just looked at me and they're like what is this guy doing and then they're like because they thought that i might react to it after passing priority which like again the, the other two players didn't know how priority worked that way either they were like no i'm not gonna be able to react to it once i pass priority yeah. unless if you do something so just pass priority and so everyone did and then the guy's like okay now i'm going to pay the two is like doesn't no. work that way right yeah it's even worse than when it's like on moto because like if you don't know how it works on moto you're yeah. just kind of screwed like how many you're definitely gonna do it wrong the first time and then you'll just know the second time that there's probably a right way to do it but you're not sure what it is and then hopefully the third time you figure it out mm-hmm. phil how many people have you got by violing in a flicker wisp and flickering or not flicker was by uh flashing in a restoration angel and flickering your lean and arbiter um, um a lot <laughs> <laughs> i don't i don't even like play that much modern where that interaction comes up a lot but the answer is a lot like i, yeah. I can vividly remember doing that in a paper tournament like i, I remember exactly where i was sitting when the judge call <laughs> happened when my opponent was like please tell me he's wrong <laughs> Yeah. So, so, so I guess I, this is a really good place then. So uh, obviously you're known for playing death and taxes. And so I, I, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas when they think of like what death and taxes looks like, because obviously uh, it is evolved a lot, you know, depends on where you see it at. Right. But generally we think about D and T and um, legacy. So what is, death and taxes uh coming from you know the death and taxes guy all right <laughs> so if you want a long form version of this please check out my website thrabenuniversity.com there is uh, it, literally an introduction page under the death and taxes materials that has like a giant monologue telling you exactly what it is i'll hit some of the high points here so death and sac death and taxes is essentially a creature based control deck 
And the problem is that if you haven't seen this deck in action before, you're going to look at a pile of bad white creatures and go, <laughs> oh, this is this is white weenie, right? You're just you're just an aggro deck. And the reality is that's very much not true. This is a creature based control deck that is trying to invalidate the opposing deck either by denying them resources with cards like Wasteland and Rishadenport that restrict mana, with permanent cards that impact what the opponent is allowed to do or how much their spells cost. These are going to be things like Leon Arbiter or Thalia Guardian of Thraben, or otherwise doing something that creates a difficult environment for the opponent. And Flickerwisp is one of the key cards towards that part of the equation, where it kind of serves as a catch-all uh, a huge tempo swing, saving an important creature from removal spells. And while this deck objectively isn't playing very many good cards, it's synergistic. <laughs> and the cards work together to create a frustrating prison-like element. It's not a true prison deck. It, it, it can never really stop something forever, but it's pretty good at buying enough time to really frustrate your opponent and get its own game plan going. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I like that description because it explains exactly why I was so obsessed with Phil's videos. I think that this actually describes so much of how, uh, I don't know about you, Michael, how uh, I think Stacks is like for me. So the, the, the big argument when I first started playing the Heliod Ballista deck in competitive EDH was, is it a stacks deck? Is it a prison deck? Is it a death and taxes deck? And I basically kept arguing that it didn't really matter what we called it, but the strategy that I thought it aligned most with, with death, was death and taxes. Because the goal of the deck was to invalidate like the metas, win cons, long enough that I could put together my A plus B combo of Heliod with Ballista. Mm-hmm. And the creatures I was do- I was doing creature based control because most of them were creatures. All of them were creatures that are played in Death and Taxes. Um, and obviously, because it's a hundred card singleton format, you know I I needed more permanents. So some of them also were enchantments and artifacts and things. Um, but primarily, it was a creature based deck doing the invalidation, the resource denial, taxing, and it was only trying to do it long enough to to pull off the win. And right. and it's really like this kind of in my in my mind it's it's like a tempo-y control feel because you kind of know you're on borrowed time that you can't prevent it forever um, and for the most part you're probably going to run out of cards because there's not a whole lot of card advantage going on there it's more like resource and action advantage so you're just trying to do it long enough to to tutor your ballista and win so when I started playing that deck what I was doing was watching a lot of videos of Phil and Pleasant Kenobi playing Death and Taxes, trying to think of like the decision points of how you order your 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 different hate bears. You know, which are you going to play first? Which are you going to play second? What are you prioritizing to protect with like mom? Stuff like that. Because that's the exact decisions I was trying to make. And I knew that someone had thought about how to think about these problems, uh, which turned out to be uh, a lot of, of Phil and, and Pleasant Kenobi were doing it. So I think that... To, I think what we call stacks in competitive EDH often is a little bit more like a death and taxes strategy. There's very few like true prison decks 
in competitive EDH. There, there are, and sometimes I mean, sometimes there are like Lavinia, the 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 Lavinia decks, old, are, old are school Lavinia. Decks. Yeah, and at one point, Heliod did play Knowledge Pool Locks for like a hot minute because I just love the card Knowledge Pool, and it's the most frustrating card to play against. But for the most part, like they're not really a lot of prison decks. It's mostly people using permanents to stop win conditions long enough for them to win. And I think that's to me that's always been like the heart of a death and taxes type strategy. It's it's buying enough time to make your win condition right. inevitable. So when we look at, you know, death and taxes, when, when did this like materialize for you as a deck? Okay. So uh, the deck development kind of starts in about a few years before 2006, Mm-hmm. But 2006 is when Mangara of Corridor gets printed, and then the deck starts to come together. So Death and Taxes is usually credited to Daniel Finn Payne. Uh, he went by the handle Finn, F-I-N-N, on MTG Salvation, um, and he usually gets credit as the original deck designer. So the Mangara of Corridor lock is really cool. It has an activated ability that lets you exile both Mangara and target permanent. And the idea is you target a permanent, oftentimes a land, with Mangara. You activate your Caracas, you return your Mangara to hand, but the ability still has a legal target, so it gets to resolve. And the idea was you have an Aethervial at three, so that every turn you get to activate Mangara (laughs) and eat one of your opponent's lands. Now... Back in the day when people used to play like four mana for cards, this was a huge deal if you were eating one of their lands every turn. It's not L-O-L. like OL. <laughs> it's not like current legacy where you get to play like a two mana Merktide Regent and it's like, oh well, okay. Um didn't well, this is even before like this is even before like Delver existed, right? Because like oh, Delver hadn't even been printed. Yeah. Uh this is this is like before even Canadian Threshold, I I believe. This is this wow. is old. So mm-hmm. as time goes on, Death and Taxes develops a more cohesive um, sort of deck idea. It starts out as kind of this pile of bad white cards that almost work. It starts <laughs> out as like Isamaru for aggression, Tangle Wire and Mangaras for taxation, and a couple of hate bears that like almost do stuff. Like True Believer, Samurai of the Pale Curtain, Glow Rider is a much slower Thalia. Yeah. And then as time goes on, you start to get real, real cards that give this an identity. You start getting your Umazawa's Jites, your Stoneforge Mystics, um, your Flicker Wisps, your Mother of Runes. And you start to look like a real creature control deck and you start to become a true competitive deck. So Death and Taxes in the period of like maybe 2006 to 2011 is like maybe that that deck that like the fringe guy at your local game store plays because he thinks it's cool. And then in 2011, Thalia gets printed and all of a sudden the deck is wildly competitive and it, it kind of has its first breakout moment there. And from it got printed. Go ahead. 
Oh, oh, it got printed with uh, Delver of Secrets, actually. That is correct. Mm-hmm. What Calhoun yeah. is hinting at. So, block is a major turning point for Legacy. Uh, we, we pick up mm-hmm. Snapcaster Mage, we pick up Delver, we pick up Thalia. Um, shortly thereafter, we start getting powerful cards for the archetype, like Rest in Peace as well. Um, it's, it's a good time. And then the period from 2014 to about 2019... Um, those are the years where Death and Taxes has some person working at Watsi that just keeps printing cards specifically for the deck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, absolute tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. Because yeah. we get like Thalia Heretic Athar, Sanctum Prelate, Recruiter of the Guard, Gideon Ally of Zendikar, um, Vryn mm-hmm. Wingmare, Council's Judgment, Containment Priest, Spirit of the Labyrinth uh, in like a two Arcon and a half of year period. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. That's even more recent, really. Honestly. How is Jailer well, so, just printing a fake magic card into Legacy for everyone? <laughs> yeah, so uh, actually, there, there's a really interesting trend here. Um, I know I was talking... To, this is a while back with Cameron from the Lab Maniacs, where Cameron has said that Wizards hasn't printed uh, a, a, like, a, like a white card or useful white card in every magic set. And I actually like looked it back into it. I was like, no, I, I don't actually think that that's true. Because like if you looked at like Throne of Eldraine, we had Deafening Silence uh, and Hushbringer, uh, and then uh, after Throne of Eldraine, uh, what was the set after Throne? Uh, do any of you guys remember some underpowered set? set that everyone complained about because Throne <laughs> was too powerful? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it was called Theros. Oh yeah, it was. oh yeah, yeah. It Theros, was. Theros. Yeah, yeah remember that Theros, little card so. called Underworld Breach? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that was, was, no, I don't remember that at all. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 like it was interesting. It was interesting because just uh, better Mosswell. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, but but in Theros, I'm I'm talking about like the the, the progression of white cards printed in every set. I mean, that was that was Heliod Suncrowned. Yeah. Heliod. Yeah, it was Heliod Suncrowned, and then after that, we had uh, Ikoria, mm-hmm. which introduced Draineth Magistrate, right? Uh, and then uh, I believe after Ikoria, uh, or I think I might have gotten mixed up with Ikoria and then Theros, but whatever. Each set had its own. And then, uh, like, I think Zendikar Rising was, like, really uh, underwhelming, I think, for a lot of people. But I think, like, people also just forgot that Archon of Maria was in that set. Yeah. 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 There's there's been a legitimately good white card in every set that has come out, which I have found to be quite annoying because I have to update decks every set. That's the awful thing about EDH is that you... You have no time to test because a new set comes out and all of a sudden you have to get like a whole new yeah. idea of what your we deck can, could do. <laughs> but like I'm also thinking like in Strixhaven, we had uh, Strict Proctor, right? Like it's just more the fact that like I think that the the, the rhetoric of white having bad cards uh, often gets overlooked by the like or often overlooks the fact that like. Well, every set white has just been consistently getting at least one thing. Well, it might not be getting a lot of things. And not a lot of these necessarily tie in or become relevant. But as sets go on, this becomes relevant. And I want to carry this over with you, Phil. Like, because uh, I feel like when you were studying Death and Taxes, I know for me, um, like hearing some of the legacy players, there was a lot of dismissal about that strategy. Like, oh, like what is Thalia even, like two mana Thalia even doing, right? And kind of like what you said, it feels like it's just a bunch of bad magic cards tied together, but there's a cohesive idea when you look at 
the individual parts bring out the sum. Uh, and that is very like mechanically on flavor to like what Wizards has designed white to be. It's a color that isn't about the individual bangers. Like I'll take red as an example. Like you, you look at a card like Vexing Devil and people lose their minds over it. Right. Or like a card like Dockside Extortionist. I was like, like you're leaving out the obvious one. Yeah. Well, well, I'm talking, I'm talking, I, I, I sprinkled in something from Legacy that like people would remember. Vexing Devil, right. people lose their mind and then everyone reminds everyone else that it's not that good. But you yeah. see it and you're like, this must be good. Yeah. yeah I want yeah. it to Goblin be good. Guy. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so people look at these cards and, you know, they're, they're, they're floored by them. Like the cards speak for themselves, but the white ones like Dahlia. And it was that people looked at this card and they're like, I don't know what this does. Right. Like it seems Makes like a forcible, not free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, go ahead, Phil. Why don't you, you tell us a little bit about this particular history about like the communities interpretation of death and taxes over time. Sure, why don't we go back about 10 years? So uh, imagine we're in roughly 2012. It's a little after Thalia has been printed. Death and taxes is putting up some moderate results here and there. But even if you're doing something like listening to like an SCG tour stream or whatever it was called at that specific point, it would kind of be like, oh yeah, they're playing this uh, unique deck. It's called death and taxes. It's like a mono white weenie deck. You know, they're just trying to turn white creatures (laughs) sideways. And then over time, over the next couple of years, you hear the rhetoric change and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, it's probably about one of the top five decks in Legacy. And then you start seeing the emergence of these like death and taxes masters, um, people like Thomas Ennevoldson, uh, Bahra, Mark Koenig, uh, Michael Derrickso. You, you see these guys who have dedicated their time to learning the ins and outs of Legacy death and taxes. And it turns out that when you when you understand your deck and you understand your opponent's deck really well, Death and Taxes gave you the tools to win so many games of Magic. And if we fast forward to the last, say, five years, at any given point, Death and Taxes was probably one of the top three or four decks in Legacy. And it kind of had to earn its its respect fighting for it. Um, but it, it is a strategy that people have come to respect. It used to be, oh, I, I get free wins because I'm playing Death and Taxes because people don't know how to play against me. Now it's mm-hmm. like, no, no, people know what's going on here. Right. The, the interesting thing you said is that like people, there was free wins at the beginning because people just didn't understand how to play against Death and Taxes. And I feel like when I started playing Heliod Ballista at the beginning, this is actually you know, really contributed to some of the tournament finishes I had. Like my first top four tournament finish was during the Flash Hulk meta where everyone just assumed you could not win by trying to interact with decks. You won by casting Flash first or Mm -hmm. waiting to cast Flash on top of someone else's, right? And I just showed up and was like, well, I play Hushbringer. So (laughs) good luck with your Hulks, everyone. Like, that's not going to work. I have rest in peace. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, everyone was like, why are you playing, again, like Phil said, these bad cards? And it's like, well, these bad cards shut off Flash Hulk, and you're playing Flash Hulk. So are they still bad cards, or are they very good cards in this current situation? And I think that I won because people would, like, try to 
do Flash Hulk into um, what's the the one uh, the one containment that, priest? If, containment priest. Like yeah. I would have two men up, and people would just be like Flash, and I'd be like, "Cool, okay. good job." Did you know this card existed? And they'd be like, "No," like it was so <laughs> far in th- from their mind. Or I'd cast it, and they'd be like, "All right, I'm gonna like cast some negate effect." Guess what? That doesn't work on creatures because no one was ever even considering that they might have to counter a creature spell. So, so, but, but, but Phil brought up a really good point. And once again, like uh, this literally happened as he was mentioning it and as and as I was thinking about it. But this is again something that I feel like gives insight that legacy players who've already experienced a competitive format and CDH being a fledgling competitive format is learning about. Um, yeah, and so anyway, uh, Phil, on to the take history of stacks. All right, let's <laughs> yeah. let's let's talk about stacks. So, a lot of times when people think stacks, the first two cards that come to mind are Trinisphere and Chalice of the Void, and these mm-hmm. are cards that are hard nose for most decks. And this is very different from Death and Taxes. Death and Taxes is usually a maybe you can do that later if you can wiggle your way out. Whereas stacks is, I am never going to let you do the thing. Mm-hmm. And conceptually, a big difference between death and taxes style decks and stacks decks is whether or not the stack piece attacks. All right. Mm-hmm. So when you think death and taxes and any deck in that general bar- ballpark, the hate effects are attached to creatures. It is a creature based control deck. Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, Leon and Arbiter, Dranith Magistrate, whatever, the hate effects are attached to creatures. A lot of times when you are playing stacks, be it actual factual smokestacks, Trinisphere, Chalice of the Void, Sphere of Resistance, Thorn of Amethyst, the threats are different from the lock pieces. Mm-hmm. A stacks deck is trying to establish a prison state where the opponent cannot win the game, and then it will play some big dumb card to finish you with. A planeswalker, a giant unanswerable creature, a large artifact, whatever. Whereas a death and taxes style deck is trying to lock you down with creatures and turn a 2-1 creature sideways 10 times. This is a, a very different conceptual plan. So, so the funny thing is in EDH, because it's a 100-card singleton, you end up playing cards from both strategies, right? Like... Even if you are what we call in our format wind conless, which means that you're planning to use combat and not like kiki jiki combat, but like legitimate combat to win, you probably play something like Trinisphere in your deck. Um, but your wind con might be technically like the Kamal you have in the command zone, which is not a lock piece at all, uh, but it's going to come down and give you an overrun every turn. So in that way, it feels more like it's like this weird thing because you're you have a card that's gonna be your real win con kamal but it's growing your hate bears to kill people <laughs> um which yeah. like puts you at this this interesting point where it's a little bit of both probably because there's not enough cards in either camp to make like a pure pr- stacks versus a pure death and taxes deck um which also gives you some nice flexibility in a match to decide what to do like most of my creature based Dex and EDH do play Chalice of the Void because, you know, Chalice on one is generally better against my opponents than me. So I will do yeah. it. Um, but I assume that people can remove it with two. It doesn't hard lock anyone out because 
you know, unlike in Legacy, where against most decks, Chalice on one could shut off a third of their spells. That's just usually not the case uh, in EDH. They're going to have removal spells that remove it left over, like their braids or something. Um, so you kind of pivot around, am I trying to stop everything or stop some things based on what's going on? Uh, so you kind of do have these two modes, but it, it's an interesting yeah. distinction. Well, I think um, uh, they're, they're, I think the way that, that, that you can get a feel or a texture about a deck, about whether it's a stacks deck or a death and taxes deck, is actually from I, I've been focusing on this new paradigm to try and convey sort of how I've been thinking about CDH. Uh, Michael, I think, highlights uh, quite a few things. And Phil, actually, uh, we had a series, uh, short-lived, that focused on taking iconic archetypes and turning them into CDH decks. And I actually consulted with Phil in building a Thalia list uh, for that, uh, that I think never saw the light of day. But yeah, you never, really you never cool. sent me your audio. <laughs> I did. I did. Did you? All right. Yes. All right. All right. I, li- I like but, this but, miscommunication. <laughs> okay. But, 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 but regardless, uh, I think what was important was um, sort of because in CDH or EDH in general, there's an overwhelming amount of resources that you're combating with. And uh, in this fledgling format, I think like Mikey Hollihan and Drake Sasser kind of pointed this out where they talked about the fact that uh, the format is still in its infancy. It's the Wild West. Certain like things aren't defined. We don't actually have really good data. And also, um, and from my perspective also, I just think that play patterns and strategies are still in their development stage. This is like... What, what Phil was talking about with like Mangara exiling a land and all that stuff is like what we would see in like an EDH deck that someone's like, hey, this is a really cool idea. Okay, so there's a lot there. So I'll just kind of latch on to a piece of it. If you are watching a like high functioning format specialist playing a format at any given point, you will hear them saying, Based on my opponent's game actions, I think they have this, this, and this card in hand. I think they are playing towards this. I need to play around this. If Mm -hmm. I do this, then I can invalidate these cards that are in their hands. And a lot of what you're talking about here is essentially virtual card advantage, where Mm -hmm. by correctly identifying what your opponent has and playing around it, you can make it as if they don't have that card. And a lot of times when you do this, if you're like recording for YouTube or streaming on Twitch, People are like, oh my gosh, you're a genius. How did you get that soul read? And it's like, no, it's not a soul read. I'm paying attention to what's going on mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And so like there, there's a lot of competitive theory out there that essentially states like at every point in the game, you should be thinking about what is in your opponent's hand, why they are playing the things they are doing. If they are making a stupid play, is it actually a stupid play? Is it actually a mistake or are you missing something? Are you misunderstanding Mm -hmm. that they need to cast that card into a Chalice of the Void so they can get one more card into their graveyard so they can play their Delve Threat or whatever? Mm -hmm. Uh, I got an example for you, Phil. Uh, So Dothy Voidwalker, someone pitched Peer into the Abyss into their discard, and it gets exiled by Dothy Voidwalker, and the Dothy Voidwalker player is like, oh, sweet, my opponent made a terrible mistake. Oh, yeah, Shauna did that. Yeah, I'm going to cast Peer into the Abyss targeting myself to like draw half the cards in my library. And then Shauna responds, I'm going to cast Deflecting Swat to now retarget that Peer into the Abyss that I gave you to myself. 
which is <laughs> such a such a sweet move. It's also oh, yeah. super ballsy. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. But but I, I mean, we talked about this in the video we did on like how to play stacks in EDH, and and it's something that I always do, and I learned it from watching Phil and also watching Jeff Hoogland, um, which is. The thing that that you do on your channel a lot that I really enjoy is you talk about what, like you were saying, what you think people have. And you talk about sometimes the next few turns, what's the sequence of events that could happen? So what could go wrong? What could go right? What's the likelihood of these different things? And in EDH, this gets like really complicated because there's three other hands you have to think about and lots of decisions before your next turn. But if you're playing a deck that is like death and taxes or like a stack stack, you need to make these decisions and you really need to think about these things. Um, and it, it's just super important. And I, I think it differentiates the people who can play a deck with individually weak cards in a powerful way from the people who play decks, you know, powerful cards just in the way they come out of the box. Like I'm going to cast this peer into the abyss, obviously, because it's a powerful card as opposed to, I know I can bait this person into casting the parent the abyss, um, yeah. and and it's a it's a big difference. Um, and I I've got a quote for you. This is one from my website. It's from MTG Salvation user Lormador, uh, which means this quote is probably like 15 years old. All right, quote: I'm pretty new to the deck myself, having picked it up in April. Sometimes other players approach me and state their intention to try it out. I always tell them I spent the first three months. Losing with the deck. The deck's hard to play. It's ultimately extremely rewarding, but until the nirvana of owning the board with a few white creatures, an artifact, and a handful of lands can be reached, a lot of dues need to be paid. End quote. Mm. And this is essentially I, I the it. death and taxes or stacks life. Yeah. You lose mm -hmm. games on turn two because you read your opponent wrong and you play the wrong hate mm -hmm. piece. The sequencing of your cards matters a lot and you need to see how they interact and you need to be thinking from your opponent's first land drop, what deck are they playing? Now in Commander, like spoilers, you get a huge tell with that. You get a lot of information. But mm -hmm. if you look at your opponent's Commander and you go like, I don't really know what sort of strategy they're going to be on. Like you, you shouldn't be playing the stacks deck then. No, like, no. If yeah. you want to be effective playing these sorts of strategies, you need the information required to pilot the deck properly. And I believe, Phil, you have a whole video on In Legacy guessing what people's deck is from their first few plays. That I was recall. my last podcast episode as well. Check out the Eternal yeah. Glory uh, <laughs> podcast episode, whatever number it was last week. <laughs> I, I spent a really long time once. I, so I played Vintage when I was in high school. And I had made, um, about the time when the Storm decks started coming to existence, I started playing this deck, which I called necropox which is a dumb name for it but i was in high school so i'm gonna give myself that um but all it was was like pox duress hymn to torak dark ritual spear of resistance chalice of the void uh and Wincon was nether spirit and and mistress factory but i played necropotence and i remember going on that forum and everyone telling me why would you play necropotence in this deck you're playing pox you're discarding all these cards and i was like yeah, but Necropotence is the best black card that exists. So I think I have to jam Necropotence in it. Now, when I was in high school and I was dumb, in general, Necropotence was not very good in that deck. But it's a general pattern that people have where it's like, I must jam the really strong cards. 
I must play. I must like have my play pattern focused on playing those strong cards, even when they go against the entire strategy of the deck that you're playing. Like I was playing what really was a prison deck. It mm-hmm. was you will have no cards and no lands and no mana, and I will kill you with a two-two. That's very hard to kill, or at least was back then. Um, but I didn't get it that like it wasn't sufficient for me to just be like, haha, my opponent has no cards in hand. I'll jam these other powerful cards. Like there was no reason for that deck to play Yawgmoth's Will because I never had enough mana to use Yawgmoth's Will appropriately. And I just thought this is a strong black card. Put it in my deck. Um, it's, it's it's sort of similar to how um, if you've ever seen the discussions that I've had around when uh, I've been building um, uh, it, what is it? Jeskai Stoneblade, uh, which is Arden Krom. And it's very much exactly what you think it is, Phil. It is uh, Stoneblade. Uh, it just <laughs> gets to cheat the equip costs and gets to put, uh, what's it called? The skull clamp on opponent's dorks. It's delightful. Um, <laughs> but so many people were like, well, you're in red. You need to be playing, you know, Underworld Breach. You need to be playing this. And I'm like, well, that's not what the deck's trying to do. The deck isn't trying to combo off because now I'm allocating slots from my main game plan to now support this other game plan that isn't even part of what my deck is trying to do. You're just, I'm. this is what I'm supposed to be playing, right? And so... I'm like, no, I'm going to play this Jeskai deck with rest in peace in it. And <laughs> there's no not going to be Underworld Breach in it. And people have a hard time wrapping their arms around that. So if I were to give one generic piece of advice to people who have like maybe never watched any of my content or maybe not even consumed very much constructed content at all. Um, please think for yourself when you have people saying things like you need to play this this card is bad that card is unplayable if their explanation stops there stop listening to them yep. yeah mm-hmm. if their explanation is i don't think you should be playing that card that's too much of a tempo hit for your deck list yeah and there is a reason if there is a justification and a defense for what they are saying the advice that you are getting might be reasonable. Yeah. So many of the best deck builders I know are the people who throw up middle fingers to the haters <laughs> and they they sit down and they test things that think that other people say are bad and are unplayable. And guess what? They are the people top eighting the tournaments. They are the people yeah. doing the innovation. Theirs are the deck lists that are getting copied a few weeks down the line. You will fuck things up. You will play bad cards. You will lose games because of the bad cards that you played, but you will gain perspective on things that are extremely valuable. Well, that about wraps things up this week for a conversation with Phil Gallagher from Thraven U. We also got to get some games of CEDH in with Phil. He was playing uh, Marwin, and uh, it was me, Charles, and Spleenface who got to play uh, two games with him. 
that uh, we're going to be editing and uh, putting out a special gameplay here in the coming weeks, maybe months. We'll see. Listen, the MLC's a lot. Um, but if you liked this episode or any of our other episodes, or if you like the MLC, please make sure to like, subscribe, comment on it if you're listening on YouTube. Also, uh, make sure to, like I said at the beginning of the show, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and I'll read your rating, especially if it's a five-star rating. <laughs> I would also like to thank our top-tier patrons, Justin, Adam Hamden, David Snavely, Dainichi's Grady Goodenough, Jacob Turan, Jason Bialik, Matt Boehner, and Senior Coupon. If you too would like to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash the mind sculptors or check out the link in the description. Thank you so much for joining us and from all of us here at the mind sculptors. I'm Callie. We'll see you next time.